Hello, and welcome to the Paperclip podcast. I'm Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation. And in this podcast, we are going to take a look together at the stories that matter to India and the world. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the new Paperclip podcast. I'm Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation. And in this podcast, we are going to take a look together at the stories that matter to India and the world. We call it Paperclip because this podcast goes beyond what you read in the morning papers to tell you, using cutting-edge research by some of my colleagues, what's really going on. The first three episodes of Paperclip looked at, essentially, how India is in a bit of a spot. The sequential standoffs in Ladakh have shown everybody in New Delhi, even those who used to be called, within quotes, China doves, that it is essentially futile to expect the Chinese presence on our northern border, and in Asia more generally, to become less confrontational in the foreseeable future. We realized in those episodes that India, whether in terms of economic or military power, did not have that many good ways to fight back. But we did have possible or potential allies. By and large, we found, the Indo-Pacific was configured to provide India with multiple good options if strengthening collective security was our goal. Yet, just in the last couple of days, something major has changed. And that is the resignation and retirement of Japan's Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe. This is unexpected and, frankly, um, a bit of a thunderbolt for the rest of us. Yet another unwelcome shock in a year that has, well, pulled no punches. In a Bloomberg column, I wrote, No Asian politician in recent memory has so completely and profoundly transformed strategic thinking. In fact, if anything, that's something of an understatement. It's hard to overstate how much Abe's career over his multiple terms in office has shaped the direction of the Indo-Pacific. In fact, that term itself, the Indo-Pacific, I think arose as a consequence of his actions and words. In 2007, Shinzo Abe visited India for the first time. And in the presence of uh, then Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, he addressed a joint session of India's parliament. He began his speech by quoting the title of a book by Dara Shikod, the Mughal scholar, writer, and prince. And the title was The Confluence of Two Seas. Confluence of Two Seas. What Dara meant by the confluence of two seas was he was writing about mingling the traditions of the Sufi and the Vedanta. But Shinzo Abe repurposed his phrase to say, and now it's a quote uh, from his speech, that the Pacific and Indian oceans are now bringing about a dynamic coupling as seas of freedom and of prosperity. A broader Asia that broke away from geographical boundaries is now beginning to take a distinct form. With cooperation, this broader Asia will evolve into an immense network spanning the entirety of the Pacific Ocean, incorporating also the US and Australia. Open and transparent, this network will allow people, goods, capital and knowledge to flow freely. It was quite a speech. And to use an inappropriately non-maritime metaphor, it drew a line in the sand. Essentially, over the speech, he said that the future of the Indian and Pacific Oceans and the countries that abut them should be, first, considered in unity rather than separately, second, should be determined by the choices made by democracies, including Japan and India, perhaps especially Japan and India. Third, 
should be open to the movement of people, trade and ideas, and fourth, should be secured by, in his exact words, joining forces with like-minded countries. With some minor changes, this is the vision of the Indo-Pacific that many countries now, more than a decade later, have adopted as their own. But it was, in 2007, perhaps in advance of what Shinzo Abe's own voters in Japan felt comfortable with. Just a month after that speech, he had to resign as prime minister. And we'll come back to that relationship between him and his electorate in terms of foreign policy a little later in the podcast. What's interesting is that when he returned to office in 2012, he published a column on the very day he took office for the Global English Press, a column in which he said, and this is another quote, I envisage a strategy whereby Australia, India, Japan, and the US state of Hawaii form a diamond to safeguard the maritime commons stretching from the Indian Ocean region to the Western Pacific. And I am prepared to invest to the greatest possible extent Japan's capabilities in this security diamond. This security diamond that Abe talked about is what we now call the Quad. Not quite an alliance, but already more than just a word. All the three other countries the Japanese Prime Minister named in their 2012 column have their own problems today. The US, for example, is facing an unprecedented protests and a divisive presidential election. Reeling from the pandemic, Australia's economy shrank for the first time in decades. And for that matter, so did India's. But all three are also dealing in different ways with a new assertiveness of President Xi Jinping's China. India has, of course, Ladakh. The US has its trade war. But let's consider Australia for a moment. That country has seen its politics and its universities interfered with, its exports to China, well, some of its exports to China cut off, and just this week, one of its citizens arrested. Strangely enough, the citizen in question was a journalist who worked for Beijing's own state television network, CGTN. It's no surprise, therefore, that Australia's government has just published its 2020 defense plan, which, according to the experts, calls for investment in collective regional strategy, in which all countries play a role in blunting Chinese adventurism, offsetting America's relative decline, and bolstering the resilience of sovereign nations. Even countries much further afield than Australia have now recognized the need for a collective strategy and for redefining the area in which we live as the Indo-Pacific. Just this week, the German Foreign Office released its first Indo-Pacific strategy. Berlin committed to strengthen structures of international cooperation and in the economic domain to avoid unilateral dependencies by diversifying partnerships. A fairly clear reminder that over-dependence on Chinese manufacturing is a security threat. The free and open Indo-Pacific of Shinzo Abe's vision is not a reality, but his success lies in convincing so many others across the world to share his vision. I have to say that India has, in some sense, failed to commit squarely to this vision. Yes, we have performed the occasional military exercise together with the Quad countries, though not so far with the entire Quad. That may change this year. We attend summits. We sometimes say the right things. New Delhi has definitely declared its unwillingness to sign up for the Belt and Road Initiative and also declined to join the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, a free trade agreement, 
that includes Japan, but which Delhi also feared would help solidify Asia into a zone of Beijing-led economies. Yet there is a great deal more that India could and should do. When Prime Minister Modi meets uh, Shinzo Abe before the latter leaves office, he will hopefully focus on greater ties between the two militaries and between the two countries' um, security establishments. And rather than on trying to push any self-defeating and frankly silly attempt to fix India's trade deficit with Japan. I say this because, unfortunately, a lot of the press coverage and some of the leaks from the government have suggested that the latter will be a major objective of Mr. Modi's summit with Shinzo Abe. That would be a mistake. And there are specific, very direct actions we could take. For example, uh, Prime Minister Abe fought off objectives, part of them within his own government, to make the US-2 amphibious aircraft, which is made in Japan, available to India. And those aircraft would be invaluable aids for us, not just for military readiness, but also for disaster preparedness. We need an amphibious aircraft of that sort. India, unfortunately, has been going slow on that agreement, on buying those planes, and it needs to step up. This is the kind of confidence-building measure that we're going to need in double now that Abe is leaving the scene. For most of us, Japanese politics can be particularly opaque, often more so than in other democracies. And of course, for those of us who are of a liberal political orientation, we may find good reasons to disagree with how Shinzo Abe's administration operated domestically and with some of its own local policy choices. That said, I should acknowledge that in India's parliament, he said that what was most admirable about India, at least in 2007, was its tradition of tolerance. And on that same trip, he also visited Indonesia, where he praised that country's motto of Bineke Tungal Ika, or unity in diversity, a motto and a slogan that links India and Indonesia, the two great democracies together. In terms of foreign affairs, definitely, he may have been a radical in Japan. But in today's world, to the rest of us, Shinzo Abe felt like a throwback to a more optimistic, more cooperative, and more ambitious time. Or perhaps, in some ways, like the last remnant of such a time. He did, after all, first take office in 2007. He recognized, in particular, two things I think all citizens of democracies must internalize and accept. The first is that foreign policy orientation is not an elite issue in a democracy. The implementation and consistency of foreign policy needs any government to have its political opposition on board, as well as general support from voters on the particular orientation they choose. And you need to explain it to them, to the opposition and to voters. Here's what Shinzo Abe told a reporter after his trip to India in 2007, when that reporter asked him a question about uh, Japan's, within quotes, assertive diplomacy. Abe said in response, I believe the understanding of the Japanese people is indispensable if we are to implement our foreign policy. It is only when you have the understanding and support of these people that you can very firmly implement that policy. And it goes without saying that on foreign policy, I need to get down to consultations with the members of the opposition. Very interesting. The phrase assertive diplomacy in particular, when applied to Abe's Japan, has a very different connotation from what we mean when we say that, for example, Xi Jinping's China has recently been assertive. The historical and cultural contexts are different, of course. 
Both Japan and the rest of Asia, remember, are very conscious of the disasters that ensued when Japan was actually assertive in the first half of the last century. Yet the fact is what the rest of the Indo-Pacific needed was an assertive Japan in the sense of an outward-looking Japan, which turned its energies towards creating stability and security for the entire region. Shinzo Abe was committed to the project of community security and democratic cooperation in a way that no other global political leader in recent history has been. Here is how he, in his own words, defined assertive diplomacy. I have been speaking of assertive diplomacy, which is to engage in foreign policy to strengthen cooperation and coordination with countries that share basic values. And secondly, to build an Asia that is open and brimming with innovativeness. And also thirdly, to contribute to the peace and prosperity of the international community. These are the elements, Abe continued, of what I call assertive diplomacy. It is not for us to selfishly insist on Japan's national interests. Rather, we need to give thought to what Japan should do in the international community together with the countries of the world. This is the basic line which I would like to speak to my public about. Those were Shinzo Abe's words in 2007. In a world of America first, China first, India first, Britain first and whatnot, is that not a message that deserves respect? The region that he shaped and named, the Indo-Pacific, will miss Shinzo Abe's commitment and his vision. This has been Paperclip and I'm Meher Sharma. Thank you for listening.